Hi, and welcome to Deer IQ, where smart hunting begins. I'm Adam Lewis, 20 plus year educator, 30 plus year deer hunter, untastefully seasoned outdoor writer, and I'm here to help you achieve what we all hope for, to be truly greater deer hunters. We are in part three of our series, The Systems of Great Deer Hunters, looking at what specific systems the best deer hunters use that give them a big advantage on mature whitetails. In this episode, we talk again with John Eberhardt, who was on episode number 16, talking about new approaches to pressured public land hunting. John has some very exact systems he's developed to gain advantages where other hunters struggle, and we talk about those in this episode. Some of this, for some reason, is controversial, so I encourage you to keep an open mind. Also, I'll say up front that we talk about two terms, which I'll define more partway through, adsorption and absorption, which are very different but sound similar and get easily confused. And I did catch myself sounding like I said the wrong one a couple times, so I'll try to clarify that better in the middle of the episode. Okay, so as we dive into this episode, here are the top look-fors or things to look for during the episode. What is John's top hunting system and why? Why does John think many hunters disregard using this system? When does John use ozone and how does he say not to, particularly on pressured deer? What is John's timing for rattling sequences and the when and where you should use this in sparring versus rattling? And there's a ton more in here guys, a ton. So listen closely and get our free journal to help get the most out of all our podcasts. It's on our website and it's linked below. That's really, really going to help. Okay, and now let's get to the podcast and up your deer IQ. All right, I'm here with John Eberhardt. John, welcome. Oh, nice to be with you again, Adam. Um, most people listening probably know John. Uh, he's an author. He's uh, been a lot of a lot of podcasts. We had um, another episode with him talking about public land hunting and just his thoughts about um, just how to approach it now that public land hunting has become really popular, it's becoming even more pressured, and different ways to have success with that, um, even in this ultra-pressured terrain. And so if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. There's some really good stuff in there about public land hunting. John is also been super successful in the state of Michigan with public land hunting and also um, he has really uh, brought on the tool I'd say of saddle hunting a lot of that is attributed to John uh, if you got into that it's probably in some way related to something he's done with it so um, it's great to have you on here John Thank you. The question and topic for today is looking at the system systems of great hunters. We were talking earlier, and I guess this is my way to look at it, but I think one of your areas that you're really good is your systems. Like you've come up with these systems that work for you that once you implement them, they're almost automated, right? They start working for you to help you in your success. And so that's what we want to talk about today is the systems of great deer hunters. So, John, first, how important are systems to you for having a chance at being uh, a great deer hunter, for having success on mature bucks like you have have had uh, all over the country? 
Well, when you say systems, I'm going to assume you're talking more like hunting programs, okay? Like uh, early season, I'm all about hunting food-based locations, isolated food-based locations uh, surrounded by security cover. Um, saddle, you know, I've hunted out of the saddle since 1981. Uh, I'm called the godfather of saddle hunting, and it's growing so big, which is really cool now. Uh, but saddle hunting is a system. You know, I can prep yeah. as many trees as I want, and I'll be, I'm still, I bought my saddle in 1981, my first one, and I'm still hunting out of the same one. And I've hunted, I've probably prepped well over 500 trees for saddle hunting because I went every season mm. with 40 or 50 locations. A lot of them are left over from previous years, but I, I always prep 10 to, 10 to 15 new locations every spring. So um, that is a, definitely a system, huge advantage over anything conventional tree stand made out of metal. Um, and then scent control, scent control is without question my biggest and I'm not going to call it a secret because I've had it out there for years. Right. And I pay zero attention to wind. There is, I don't think there's a deer hunter out there that would not agree that the nose on a deer is their biggest defense. And when you can fool their nose, just imagine how much of an advantage that gives you. I never am worried about getting winded ever. So right. I can go out in the woods and I can do things in the woods wearing my full scent lock activated carbon suit, doing it properly. Tons and tons, thousands, probably a hundred thousand to a million bow hunters have owned scent lock suits, but they weren't using it properly and in conjunction with other things to stay scent free. So, you know, until you do it properly, it doesn't work. You know, it's like having a car with three tires that you can still drive it, but it doesn't work like it would with four. So doing it properly, storing it properly, uh, deabsorbing it properly, using it properly in conjunction with a clean backpack, uh, you got to have the head cover, you know, all the TV sponsors that Scentlock sponsored for years, you know, they'd have a jacket and a pant on and a regular old logo cap like you have on right now with no technology in it and their faces exposed. They got beards, they got hair hanging out of the back of their hat. 40% of your odor comes out of your hair follicles in your head. So, you know, if you got that exposed, you just blew your scent control. So, but where they hunt, deer tolerated a lot of human odor because they're hunting on micromanaged property where the deer never get targeted until they're four or five years old. So right. they obviously tolerate hunters because their encounters with hunters over the years as they were growing to the maturity level, they paid no consequences for. When you're hunting public lands and pressured areas, Deer have consequences as soon as they have their first set of antlers. There's a spike horn or a four point or a six point or whatever. So you're hunting a different deer when you're hunting in public land. So scent control is a big, big deal. And why more hunters don't take advantage of it, I, I don't understand. Now, I do realize hunters in managed areas, they don't have to take advantage of certain things and use saddles and, and scent control as much because... Again, they're hunting managed deer that have been allowed to grow to maturity without any negative consequences with their scent being in the woods. Yeah. So they, they tolerate a lot more. Well, so yeah, let's dig in. Let's dig into your scent control system. And that's one guys maybe have heard before, but I think it's definitely worth really getting into the details of what yours looks like. And 
you mentioned this, and I was going to ask, um, why do you think there are there is like these uh, different factions out there in the hunting community? One that definitely, you know, does scent control and believes in it, and one that like totally is a says it's worthless. Why do you think? I mean, why do you think so many guys uh, are uh, don't think it's worth even trying? Because they know absolutely nothing about it, and the, probably the key thing is they don't want to put the work forth to do it, and they're probably not detail oriented enough people to do it. Yeah, I, I it is a ton of work, and I have my own that's a little different than yours, but I will say that like once I started getting into it and started doing it, like I noticed immediate differences Mm -hmm. i got winded way less and i'm to the point now that like i if i get winded i'm really surprised and i know i did something wrong right feeling in (laughs) yeah and you know and so if but if you are not very meticulous and very detail oriented um it it won't work right um because it only takes one little thing to mess it up um and and yeah you're probably right if people aren't willing to put in the hard work, and I would just challenge anybody listening, it will work for you um, if you're willing to put in the hard work and stay consistent with it and meticulous with it. Yes. But yes. so, John, yeah, tell us about the system you developed. How did you develop this system, and what is it today that allows you to basically say, it doesn't matter the wind condition, I'm going to hunt here? Well, it, it actually is simple. If I if I were to drive my minivan, which is loaded with all my gear, and you were to drive, not you, because you're doing scent control as well, but somebody that didn't do scent control, and they were to drive their pickup, and we were going to park at a spot and get out and go hunting, I would be out of my minivan ready to go and step in the woods ready and dress before they would. That's a 100% guarantee. So... My system is pretty basic. Most of the work, almost all of the work is done at home. So activated carbon absorbs molecules. It's the most absorbent substance known to man at this point in time. Um, And if you take a one pound butter tub of activated coconut carbon, which is what Suntlock uses, and they own the patent on using activated carbon. So that's why all the other clothing manufacturers say it doesn't work is because they can't use it without paying them a royalty and <laughs> license. Uh, but if you take a one-pound tub of activated carbon, like a little butter tub, and if you took all the interior pores, all the exterior surfaces, tertiary pores, and you flattened everything out and butted it all up to each other on all the pores, it'd cover over 100 acres. The porosity of activated carbon and the absorptive capacity of activated carbon is almost unbelievable. And... Basically, what you do when, when you get an activated carbon suit, and when I talk a suit, I'm talking uh, pants, jacket, gloves, head cover with the drop-down face mask. It's got to cover your face. It's got to cover your hair. It's got to cover your hair up here. It's got to cover your neck because uh, you sweat a lot, and your hair follicles have a lot of order. So you got to have that, and then you have to also have a backpack. When I do seminars, I'll ask hunters in the uh, audience, okay, how many of you guys have you sound like over the years? Usually at least half of the hands go up. And then I will ask, okay, how many of you get winded, have gotten winded with sunlight? At least 80% of the 50% of the hands went up, still go up because they, they 
they got witted using it. And as I mentioned in that other podcast, uh, they were using it like what they see advertised on TV, like the TV guys. And the TV guys, in my opinion, don't do anything right. I, um, you know, they because of where they hunt. So you have to do the head cover and you have to have a backpack. Uh, when I asked those same guys that were getting winded, okay, how many of you guys carry a backpack? Everybody's hand goes up when you, everybody carries a fanny pack or a backpack. Okay, how many of you guys that were using scent lock washed your backpacks and scent free detergent frequently and kept it in an airtight container? I never have anybody's hand go up. Nobody does right. that. So you're carrying a backpack with you that you get into with your bare hands every day to reload. And that's a huge human scent wick. And then you sit up there with your scent lock on and you get winded and you blame it on that. Or else you're using, you know, with a saddle. I'm a saddle guy, so I have to wash my saddle and keep that clean. I have to, if I'm using sticks with aiders, I have to keep the aiders clean because they're hanging on the tree below me. Everything you use that's fabric has to be washed in scent-free detergent and kept pretty much in an airtight container when you're not physically using it in the field. And then it has to be deabsorbed about every three or four months in the dryer. You don't watch it. Hi, this is Adam Lewis and this is your high IQ moment. Are you easily confused by the concepts of adsorption and absorption? Many people are because they sound alike, but in science they are very different things. The main difference is that while absorption with a B involves the mass transfer of particles into another material, one substance absorbing another, adsorption with a D takes place with the adhesion of particles onto the surface of another substance. Adsorption is what activated carbon does. Here's an excerpt about that from my scent-free regimen that is detailed out for you and you can read it, which is found below. Carbon is an interesting element since it easily bonds to itself and other elements and makes up all living things. This is called organic chemistry. When living things are reduced, what is left is carbon, or what we know as charcoal. It naturally attracts other organic molecules to its slightly polar or charged surface, which is called adsorption and is basically a weak bond also known as van der Waals or London dispersion forces. Activated charcoal, also known as activated carbon, has long been used as a filtering agent for water and air. It is often used in biospills and environmental hazard sites to remove dangerous organic chemicals or VOCs, volatile organic compounds. And many scent molecules are also VOCs. Activated carbon is just organic material like coconut husks, wood, or even paper that has been heat treated to gain extra pore and adsorption space for grabbing organic molecules, like scent molecules. These tend to attract odor molecules which adhere to its surface, the basis for scent lock and similar garments. These bonds are not strong like bonds holding together hydrogen and oxygen and water molecules, for example, and are easily overcome, like by heating in your dryer, which knocks off these organic molecules. This frees up much of the surface area once again to attract organic scent molecules from the air and you. So that's the science. And do you like this episode so far? If you do, take a second to like and subscribe or rate and review depending on where you're watching or listening. And maybe share this episode with a friend you think might benefit. That really helps the podcast and channel grow and it's greatly appreciated. 
And I thank you ahead of time for that. And we have a bunch of good and helpful stuff in the description and on our website, including our Deer IQ test, our free public land hunting guide, and our newsletter sign up so you don't miss any of our new and good content. So check all those out. They're linked below. Okay, and now let's get back to the podcast. When you throw it in a dryer that gets 155, 60 degrees, it causes those molecules that are bonded to the, to the carbon to move more rapidly, and it causes the carbon to move more rapidly, and they break free, and a high percentage of them go out the dryer vent. And then as soon as it comes out of the dryer, it's got to be put in an airtight container and sealed. And then, because it doesn't know when you're hunting or not, it's absorbing all the time. Right. So it's got to be in an airtight container until you're going in the field with it. Yeah, so after you either deabsorb it or your washer closed or whatever, you're immediately putting it in some sort of airtight yeah. uh, bag, something like that, tote. Um, I use, I mean, I use garbage bags in a tote. Um, just something that will keep it from being exposed to anything else. And then something that I think a lot of guys maybe don't realize, or maybe they do, but it makes it harder as season goes by the the chance of you accumulating odors increases uh the you're you're getting fatigued probably as season goes by so sticking with the system becomes work i guess yeah. um and so guys will take shortcuts or get lazy or whatever but at the same time that you need to be keeping this meticulous system, you know, as weeks march on and you're getting, let's say, moving through October, getting toward November, and yep. you need to continue the meticulousness of keeping this system. Uh, also, the deer are becoming more wise, I more guess. More vulnerable. Yeah. They, they get more vulnerable when it gets into the rut. So if you slack off, and then when it gets into the rut, when things get serious, you've slacked off, and now you've lowered your odds. Right, right. And in deer in general, especially on public, are well, they're more educated because they've been hunted now for weeks and weeks and weeks. So it becomes more important that you're really meticulous with it. Um, so you do all that beforehand. You are, I would say, you probably never dress until you get there, right? Correct. Like you're never wearing this stuff out never anywhere. Stuff, no, never. Uh, I think it's interesting. A few years ago, I was, I came back to a spot on public land and there's some guys parked there and, uh, this guy's standing around in the scent lock suit, smoking a cigarette. And I was like, yeah, you know, he's asking me if I saw anything and all this stuff and saying how, complaining how he had, didn't see anything. And, you know, I didn't say anything, but it's, you know, um, you gotta use sunlock, wearing sunlock to my workshop. <laughs> right. So it, you're never wearing it driving, you're never wearing it anywhere else. You're, you're dressing when you get there. And then when you come back from hunting, what do you do when you come back and get your... Open the side door, take it off, and put it right back in the tote. And then every, you know, early season when you're perspiring more, I might de-absorb it every two hunts. And then later in the season when I've got on multiple undergarments, I may only de-absorb it every five or six hunts. So uh, the de-absorption is based on how much odor you think it might might have on and then if you're wearing if you're wearing a sunlock suit that's got a polyurethane membrane um, it has to be turned inside out to be deabsorbed so the carbon's exposed on the inside of the suit um, so there's different different suits have to be deabsorbed in different manners 
And also when you're talking about activated carbon, NASA uses it in their spacesuits. It's in every vehicle on the road. Uh, every military on the face of the earth uses activated carbon in their uh, chemical warfare suits. Uh, it's used It's used in literally thousands of applications, paint respirators. I mean, things that save people's lives. If you think all the right. worldwide governmental bodies are using act, just picked up activated carbon and say, hey, let's use this stuff. Uh, no, it, it works. It functions. And that's why they use it. They're saving people's lives by using activated carbon. They're just using it in the other direction. So the chemical molecules don't reach the soldiers' bodies. Right. We're using it so the chemical molecules don't get out into the environment past the suit. What's your thoughts on um, ozone? Uh, I think ozone is awesome, used in the right manner. Uh, you know, I use ozone machine to clean out my van. You know, I'll run it through two or three cycles in my van. I'll empty my van before season. I may do it one time during season. I would never, ever use ozone in the field. Uh, and I would never use ozone on my scent clothing because ozone has its own odor. And when you're hunting public land, uh, foreign odors of any type can cause a mature buck to change his mindset if he's coming into an area, a location on the marriage you chose it for. So if he's coming in from downwind, uh, if you're in a scrape area and he's coming in because you chose this area because it's a scrape area, I don't want any foreign odors there whatsoever. And I've actually talked to a TV guy uh, that I know very, very well, and he was sponsored his main sponsor was by the ozone company the overhead ozone and he said he shot 50 some bucks Pope and young bucks on tv with that ozone over his head but when he used it on his property up here in michigan two and a half year old bucks were spooking from him hmm. yeah and so uh ozone works good if you, you for your undergarments and stuff to take all kill all the molecules in your undergarments it works great but as far as using ozone on my scent lock, no way. Or I've never, ever even considered using an overhead ozone machine in a pressured area. Yeah, it, it does have a scent. It, it does eliminate odor molecules, but it has its, you know, its own odor. And it's great for, like you said, cars. Um, and they've, again, been using ozone to, to deodorize hotel rooms and stuff like that for years okay. and years and years. So again, it's it, it's a science thing. Uh, it does work, and I think some of the stuff out there. And I'll, I'll put a link here if you want to share some of your regimens uh, for guys. And I'll link to a pod or a blog that I have about uh, what I do. But part of it is ozone. But I have found that um, I get an industrial. I have an industrial ozone generator that I use because. I think a lot of the the little units out there don't put enough ozone out to actually permeate uh, your clothing and stuff like that. Like yeah. it, it takes a lot, I think, uh, to really be effective. But and typically, if you are doing ozone on your undergarments, you know, if you're using Sunlock as an exterior, uh, if you leave those, if you leave that those garments out exposed for a little while, your undergarments, uh, that ozone odor will dissipate. But if you take something right out of uh, an ozone machine and you put it in an airtight container. Cause I keep all my stuff in airtight containers. They're all class, you know, classified. I've got my rain gear in an airtight container. My sunlocks in an airtight container. My undergarments are in airtight containers. Um, but 
on your undergarments if you ozone them to clean them because you don't have access to a washer and dryer. Um, if you leave them out in the air for a couple hours, they, that ozone odor will dissipate. Right, yeah. And also ozone will eat away anything that's rubber-based. So anything that's elastic, uh, rubber boots, it'll just destroy it. So you just have to be mindful of that. And also you shouldn't be breathing it either. It's pretty corrosive and um, bad for you to breathe in. So um, anything else about your, I guess, scent uh, system, your scent regimen, John, that you think is just key? Um, you know, if, Adam, if you want to, uh, if somebody wants to send me an email and just put scent regimen, I'll send them my scent regimen documents. I mean, it's lengthy. I have 11 different documents and it's lengthy. But if you want to get into scent control and not pay attention to wind, you have to be a detail-oriented person. Um, but I'd be more than happy to send that to anybody that sends me an email. I'll give you my email address. It's uh, D-E-E-R-J-O-H-N-5-1 at gmail.com. Yeah, we can request they can get that. We can link that and we'll link also the blog where I give mine with some different ideas with that too. And I think that the main thing that I'm getting out of this is that guys, it's work, right? Uh, But once you get a system in place and you tweak it, it starts to work for you. uh, And you're just, you're just following the system, right? It's habit. It's just something you do normal. Right. And, and you get in the habits, but it's work. And But a lot of the work's on the front end, getting everything yeah. prepped and set and just sticking with it. And But if you can do that, you will definitely see results. Like I said, I, I get winded way less than I used to, to the point where it's like if I get winded, it's it's rare and what did I do wrong? It bothers me. Yeah, it bothers me. Like what did what did I do wrong? I you know, and I know you. I've known you for several years, and you're a detail oriented guy. And I I know without question you probably are really good at what you do because you are a detail guy. I can almost look at somebody, look at the inside of their vehicle, and tell if they could do a scent control regimen or not <laughs> just by just by how their hygiene is, or you know how they're dressed, or you know. You can just tell a detailed person from a non-detailed person, right? By reading people. But you can always work on it. You can always get yeah. there. And I think maybe was the last podcast or this one, but there's always places where every hunter can be working on and improving in and learning, right? And, and just getting yeah. better, even if it's just a little bit. Like, is there some little thing that you can tweak and make better uh, that could be all the difference? And, and, that's, and that's not a little thing. Scent control no. is a huge thing. It's the biggest thing in bow hunting. And I hunted the wind for 35 years. So, you know, I've, I have not paid attention to the wind for 20-some years. But I hunted the wind strictly for 35 years. There was rut phase locations that I never hunted during some years because I, on the days I had off work, the wind was never correct to hunt the rut phase location. Right. And there were – I quit hunting in saddles. I quit – I'm not the saddle – hunting system but saddles between hills i quit hunting sides of ridges there was areas where thermals and swirling winds would always bust me because they changed every five to ten minutes i just quit setting them up because it was negative i was educating deer i was educating does and i was educating subordinate bucks and mature bucks and i just quit hunting them so you know i've done the wind thing 
<laughs> I did that for years. I still hunted at the same heights I hunt now. Um, but being able to hunt any place you want, whenever you want, you know, as long as you got the daily and seasonal timing down, you know, be, being able to hunt anywhere without being winded is just huge. It's huge. Yep. It's a definite game changer. And if you're a guy or a person listening to this and you're on the fence with that or have, have kind of poo-pooed it in the past, I encourage you to just check it out. It, it, it's science-based and, uh, I can aff- attest to what John's saying that it does, it does help a ton. So, well, let's move on to, uh, maybe another system or two, John, that you use, uh, and you mentioned earlier, kind of you have a system that you work, uh, with sparring and rattling. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I've been doing, I mean, I've always done a lot of sparring and rattling. And, and when I say sparring and rattling, most of the stuff I do in Michigan is sparring, sparring based. Um, most of the stuff when I go out west, out of state, is rattle based. It's more noisy. It's more aggressive because they have a lot more mature bucks that where that noise, the noises of two big bucks fighting is not uncommon. In Michigan, you just don't have two big bucks fighting because it's pretty rare you have two big bucks on public land that live within several miles of each other it just it's just not that normal so i do a lot of sparring in michigan just time tickling and i do a lot of that during that mid-october time frame when there's not really a whole lot of other stuff going on is when i do sparring and bucks during that time they're not coming in to fight really they're just coming in out of curiosity and they spar during, as soon as they shed their velvet, they spar up until pre-rut, up until the rut phases. They spar for pecking order. They just put their antlers together and make some tickling noises, and then they push each other. Then they'll make some more rattle, you know, tinkling noises. And that's what I do when I'm out there doing sparring sequences in that mid-October when bucks are, you know, sparring for pecking order. I'm just doing nice little rattle or sparring sequences, and I'll only do two per sit. So if it's an evening on, I'll do it about 45 minutes before dark and then another one five minutes later. And if it's a morning hunt, I'll do it about 45 minutes after daylight and then another one five minutes later. So I do two sequences five minutes apart and then I'm done for that morning or evening. I'm on it all day said I might do one in the middle of the day. Why that uh, that time frame, time lag? Like how did you come up with that as being the right, I guess, recipe the closer you are to daylight or the closer you are to dark, the higher the percentage odds of a buck wanting to get up and come in to check something out. Yeah, because he's already Yeah, he's going to be in the bedding area typically. Yeah. And I've had a lot of success with it in standing corn over the last several years because they bed in the corn, you know, once the corn's up. So I rattled, I think last year of the 16 bucks, I rattled in by October 15th in Michigan. I think 12 of them were out of standing corn where I was rattling just off the edge of standing corn. And scrapes. Scrapes was another one we had. Yeah. With, with rattling real quick, though. Yeah. Um, something to point out is it is really specific to area, right? So if you talk yeah. about Michigan highly pressured, like deer get really call shy and you have to be careful so you talked about sparring sequences which is much lighter right you're just tickling i guess uh, would be the way to put it and then if you go to an area where deer are more used to more mature deer like you said kansas or whatever 
that's more the rattling with the, with the heavy uh, smashing and antlers. Plus, together. When plus, when I'm traveling out of state, I'm always going during the rut phases when they're actually fighting. I mean, they're blood fighting for breeding rights. So, you know, they're coming. They are they're coming into a more aggressive noise because they're actually fighting for breeding rights. And in that mid October time frame and into the pre rut, you know, they're just sparring for you know pecking order they're not really battling right so time of season where you're at really I'm being cognizant of that because again you mentioned uh i think on our last podcast the idea of you know i can i mean i watch tv shows and i see these guys smashing antlers together and stuff and i think well that's the way i should do it um but it might not be depending on your location where you're hunting and the time of year you really have to think about that like what is naturally occurring during that time and you're trying to replicate something that sounds real yes and you've got you've got to do it like if i'm let's say it's uh pre-rut and i'm going into public land to hunt a location back in a bedding area for the first time of the year okay odds of me rattling are pretty slim because i'm going to let the location work on the merits i chose that for i don't want to possibly screw something up so i I typically if i'm hunting a location for the first time of the season i will not do a rattle sequence or a sparring sequence there i'll let the location work on the merits that i picked that location for but if i come back and hunt that spot a second or a third time the the likelihood of me doing a rattle sequence if the situation's right obviously it's got to have the right security cover at the location, it's got to have adequate transitions to cover to it, security cover to it. Um, I'll do a rattle sequence. But, um, you know, I, I always think if, if you've picked your locations out correctly and you're using the proper daily and seasonal timing, you should always let your locations work on the merits you chose it for, at least for the first time. I think that's really, yeah, really good point uh, because I think the tendency is for guys to, you know, they're excited to be in this spot and you can screw it up, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Let the deer do what they're going to do and yeah. see and see what happens uh, before you try to start, like, you know, being more ag- aggressive, I guess, with what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, and a lot of guys, you know, if you're hunting public land, I highly recommend not paying a lot of attention to the TV shows because yeah. those guys are hunting a different deer than you are. They are hunting a deer that's managed. They're not targeting it until it's older. Um, they hunt open areas. They hunt out of box lines and pick cornfields and bean fields and hay fields and food plots. You don't have that luxury. You're hunting a very, very smart deer if you're hunting a three-and-a-half-year-old buck on public land in a pressure in a heavily hunted state. And you don't have the luxury of doing what the TV guy is doing because they – most TV hunters, if they had to go hunt public land in a heavily pressured public land, they wouldn't have the first clue what to do because the way they hunt, they'd never kill a thing. Yeah, Not saying they don't have the capability to learn how to do something, but the way they hunt on the property they're hunting will not work generally on public on heavily pressured public lands. And you know that as well. Yeah, it's different world. Yeah, totally different world. You got to know what world you're in. Yep. Um your scent control system, uh, rattling system, uh, and you mentioned scrapes and how you hunt scrapes is kind of a uh, 
system, I guess, of sorts or how you approach it. So uh, what would that look like for John? Okay. I am a huge scrape area hunter. Not so much a runway scrapes, but scrape areas where you'll have multiple two or three, four scrapes in a small zone. That's a primary scrape. And over half of the bucks I've shot in the last 30 years were at scrape areas. Now, a lot of those scrape areas were married to a food location. So let's say I've got an isolated white oak tree back in the timber. It's got a lot of security cover around it. You know, if it's the years that it's dropping acorns, if it's an isolated a white oak and there's not a lot of other ones around, so, you know, they're coming to this specific one, the does are going to be feeding there. So anytime, any place where there's high doe traffic, that's where you're going to find your primary scrape areas. Primary scrapes are 100% of the time always located where there's high doe traffic. That's why the scrapes are there. So I'm a huge scrape guy. I hunt when I'm doing my speed tours prior to season, looking at my early season hunting locations, like if a tree, an apple tree, an isolated apple tree is dropping apples, odds are really decent. There's going to be a scrape open at that apple tree or at a white oak if there's not a other sea of oaks in the area. You know, that's an isolated food spot. So those are spots I'm going to hunt during the early part of the season. And then I'll leave those scrape areas alone because once I hunt those a time or two during the first four or five days of season, if I continue hunting them, all I'm going to be doing, even though I'm not worried about getting wounded, I'm altering the doe traffic with my intrusion. Because yeah. I'm still making a physical intrusion every time I hunt that spot. So I don't want I want to leave that scrape area totally 100% alone after the first several days of season until the rut phases, because I don't want to alter the doe activity, which will in turn alter the buck activity coming there in the daytime once the rut phases start. So I'll leave those scrape back, scrape areas alone, and then I start hunting them again during the rut phases. But the scrape area has to have, if 100% on public land, it has to have adequate security cover around the perimeter of the scrape area itself, the kill zone. A lot of times you'll find little openings in autumn olives or red yeah. brush or whatever. Um, it has to have adequate perimeter security cover, and it also has to have adequate security cover to a known bedding area. That's why I'm usually in a bedding area. But if you're not in a bedding area, it has to have adequate security cover to a known bedding area. So if there's a scrape, three or four scrapes here by this, let's say, uh, white oak. Okay, and then let's say there's 200 yards of open timber, maples, beech trees, whatever they may be. And then there's a bedding area. If I set up at this scrape area in the evening, a buck is not going to leave a bedding area and walk through 200 yards of vulnerable open timber to get to that scrape area in the daylight. He's just not going to make that vulnerable movement. Same thing mm -hmm. in the morning. He's not going to be, he's not going to come into that scrape area and then have to, you know, and stay there until daylight and then have to make a daylight transition through that vulnerable open timber to the bedding area. So you have to have transition security cover to the scrape area and the scrape area or whatever you're hunting has to have adequate security cover around the kill zone. Yeah, and I think a lot of guys get excited about seeing these big scrapes on field edges and stuff. 
And unless it's ultra unpressured, uh, you're not going to see the deer there. Those, those are nighttime. Uh, that's nighttime activity. And you might see a subordinate buck, but that'd be about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, year and a half, maybe two and a half year old buck. Um, and that's where, I mean, really putting trail cams to work for you can give you a reality check. You know, if you put a trail camera on some of these scrapes, maybe you're monitoring and just see when, when are bucks showing up? Are any of them showing up in daylight? Because if they aren't, why are you even hunting there? Right. And so, yeah, the idea of uh, the security cover, like being so thick and we talked about our first uh, podcast together so thick that it's hard for you to get through it's hard for you to see through they've got to feel that security to even think about moving in daylight and that's where you need to find these scrapes you're talking about there's they have to be mature bucks like to be within one or two quick bounds of exit security cover where they're gone so yeah you you security cover yeah, we haven't mentioned it much on this one. We covered it really well on the first podcast. But security cover, security cover, security cover. Uh, pressured public land, you've got to be in it. You have to be within or on the edge of heavy security cover so you got a quick exit. And hunters that gravitate to security cover, even when you go out west, even when I go out to Kansas or when I get drawn for Iowa or when I go to Ohio, mature bucks are typically security cover oriented anyway. Right. Even, even lightly hunted areas, they are. So as long as you always gravitate to security cover or edges of the security cover, you're going to be a more successful deer hunter, no matter where you hunt. Right. Well, John, as we wrap up this segment, um, what are maybe a couple things to kind of, I guess, summarize or, or wrap it up here? A couple of main suggestions for guys that are working on um, their systems to just tweak them, to make them better, what would be a couple of things you'd say to them to help them uh, really make those better? Uh, I would definitely recommend sending me an email for a scent control regiment, uh, and then you can read through it and see what it's really all about. Um, learning proper daily and seasonal timing for hunting your locations, not over hunting your locations. Um, on public land, I think it's really important to leave your locations alone after the first few days and then hunt them key on them during the rut phases when the mature bucks start thinking with other body parts than their brains because their testosterone has gotten up to that to that level. Um, and you have to outthink, you have to outwork other hunters. That That's a basic principle of buying public land. You have to be willing to work harder than they are and you, but you have to not only work harder, you have to know where to put the work forth. You've right. got to go to areas as the best you can to the best of your ability where other hunters are hopefully not going to be. And that's back in the security cover, crossing rivers with waders, going back through a cattail marsh, going through, you know, hip with hip boots through some sort of a marshy grass area with red brush in it. You just got to get to where the bucks have been pushed to by all the other hunters because uh, all the sign in the world is meaningless if it's out in open areas because it's all done after after dark you know all the sign in the world is meaningless if it's not made in the daytime by an animal you want to kill right and the idea of working 
harder and smarter and these systems these systems are what the the smarter part of it where you can work as hard as you want but if you stink uh or leaving a bunch of scent around and you aren't meticulous with this and that's the prep work the hard work of the prep of getting these systems like your scent control system in place and sticking with it are what yield the results down the line right and that's that prep work 100% um, John, before we go here, um, we didn't really start with much of an intro, but uh, you got a lot going on uh, as a writer. And you do workshops and different things. Uh, why don't you share a little bit what's going on in your world right now that guys uh, could be aware about? Um, in the process of writing a new book, my fourth book, uh, an instructional bow hunting. It's going to have a lot of saddle stuff in, involved in it, and. Uh, there's a new magazine coming out. Bowhunter Magazine's bringing out a new Saddle Hunter magazine. It's going to be out. I think their first issue is going to be in September. So I've got an article mm. in that. Um, other than that, I'm I retired from my job last December, so I'm just chilling and writing and be glad when this book's done. I think I'm 23 chapters in right now. It's just it's just about done. So awesome. So be on the lookout for John's new book, and that means you can hunt even more now right uh once i get this book done yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know what i i won't hunt more that's one thing i learned years ago it's not how much time you put in the woods it's how smart you do it right yeah you don't want to wear out spots that's a whole topic in itself of uh you know i call the myth of hunting harder but all right well thanks john um thanks adam for the opportunity i appreciate it yep All right, so here are your high IQ takeaways and challenges. The big challenge for this episode is, if you are unsure about scent control or think it's impossible, try John's or my regimen completely and meticulously for one year and see your results. Do you see any results that are different than what you used to get? Do you use rattling? How can you better use this tool or system at the right place in the right time for better results? And do you differentiate hunting approaches by area you hunt and the pressure at each place? How can you better be aware of this and change depending on the areas that you hunt? And next time we will look at some systems I use and specific hunts that I've had success with as I break down my hunts from this past year. Finally, I'm getting to that. And what led to the high success rate I had this year on specific deer? There are some ups and downs, and I'll share all that with you and what I learned, both the good and the bad. You won't want to miss that, and I'll see you then.